ready? In five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource to help make substantive disciples for the local church. My name is Nicole Kyle. I'm a part of the staff team here at High Point, and um, you're about to listen to a conversation that I had with our senior pastor, Nick Gibson, in episode two of Clarity Check, which is a sub-series in our podcast where we take complicated subjects and try to make them a little more clear for you. So in this episode, you'll, like I said, hear me and Nick talk about two sermons that we had preached here in the past six months that when I listened to the second one, I thought, this feels a little confusing to me. I'd love some clarity on it. And I asked Nick if we could talk about it together on the episode. So hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Engage and Co podcast, in which we podcast things designed to um, make us substantive disciples for the local church. Nicole is going to be questioning me about some points I made in my sermon relative to points Paxton made in one of his sermons. Which that I think sounds it, accusatory. It's not accusatory. No, it's it, it'll hopefully be a fruitful discussion. Sometimes, you know, it's the old Hegelian, you know, you have point A, and then point A, B seems to contradict it. Mm-hmm. And it's only when you like deal with that contradiction that you get to understanding C, which is like how the two go together and make a better understanding. And so Mm -hmm. one of the things I tell the eighth graders when I speak at their chapel here at school is that what you believe about God isn't right. It's, it's your conceptualization. And if you think that that is what God thinks, you'll lose your faith because at some point you'll realize that your conceptualization is inadequate for the complexities of life. And instead of saying, Oh, my understanding is inadequate. I need to learn more about life, go back to God's word, sort of figure out, and reconceptualize this, you're just going to lose your faith because your your conceptualizations in eighth grade or at 22 years old or whatever mm-hmm. are not going to work later. Does that make sense? So this is a good process where you put A and B together mm-hmm. and you like reconceptualize something hopefully mm-hmm. in a deeper and more meaningful way. Great. So and if it's accusatory, it's fine. I actually enjoy, <laughs> I enjoy being accused of things. Okay, great. So um, for a little bit of context, I've shared my testimony on this podcast. A while back. And um, during that, I shared a little bit about Scott, who's my husband, and my journey through trying to build our family. We were living in Minnesota. We decided we wanted to start trying to get pregnant. We got pregnant. We lost that baby. And then um, had three years that followed of not getting pregnant, um, going through the process of adopting. We were just waiting to be chosen by a birth mom, and then we found out we were pregnant with our son, Luca, who is now a year and a half. And so in that process, um, I got very angry and really bitter towards God, and I realized a lot of a lot of You could hardly tell. <laughs> Wait, I don't know if that's a joke or not. It's definitely a joke. Okay. <laughs> um and I think this kind of goes towards or goes along with what you were saying at the beginning that I I started to realize I had so many warped perceptions of faith mm-hmm. and Christianity and what I thought God believed and how I thought he felt about me. And um, and it was really painful walking through that. Yeah, I think one of the biggest ones is just the assumptions we have between how we th- how we're told God feels about us. Mm-hmm. 
and what we assume that means he would do. Yeah. If uh-huh. he really felt that way. Yes. Negating all of the complexities of his being, person, of reality, all he's accomplishing in his providence and everything that's wrong with us that we don't even understand, and et cetera. Right. right. The other thing that I also really had to wrestle with in that was my misconception that God worked on a contractual uh, basis with his people. That like, if I could do enough things that God owed me something. And if you had asked me, do you really think that? I would have always said, no, absolutely not. You would have been offended by that. Oh, I would have been so offended by that. But the way that I was actually living my life in terms of how I felt um, and what I was, you know, when at the end of the day and I'm going to bed and I'm struggling with the things in my head and that those were the things that I really found myself believing that, well, I'm not, apparently I've not done enough things for God to give us a baby because otherwise he would. Right. I, yeah. So, um, you know, we love to beat up on Freud in this podcast, but um, one of the things that in modern world, the world we talk about is like the subconscious, like how you have structures of thought mm-hmm. that you are not conscious you're having. They are before your thoughts and it's very difficult to understand them. You have to do extra work to try to figure out what's going on. Now, Freud didn't discover the subconscious. Um, I remember reading in Augustine who preceded him by more than a thousand years and him talking about the, like our thoughts that we don't understand and how that all works and how God interacts with them. And um, Luther basically said, the human heart, meaning our subconscious, essentially our, our thoughts that we don't control the way we wish we could, mm-hmm. are bent on religion, meaning I do enough good and so God should respond to me. And right. so you can believe all you want. You can believe you that your doctrine is I am loved first. And because I'm loved, I respond to God's love. Mm-hmm. And I live in thankfulness and joy and respond out of thankfulness and joy. And you can really believe that's true about you. And you can journal like that's true about you. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you can tell others it's true. And you can lead other people to faith, uh, faith on the basis of that truth right, right. and not believe it mm-hmm. at all right. in the deeper structures of your heart and mind. And sometimes it takes years or extremely painful episodes like the one you're talking about right. for you to realize that. Mm-hmm. And the the way we should feel in piety is... Oh, thank you, God, mm. because there is no greater cancer or poison to the human heart or the human race than a heart that relates to God in the self-righteousness of religion. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think that I have seen that growth in me, that I am so grateful for the things God has done to make that make me aware of that at the age that he made me aware of that and that and he did give us a son. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, he didn't have to do that. And, um, so we, I've walked through that. Scott and I together have walked through a lot of those types of things. So I'm going to kind of go through, I'm, I promise I'll bring us to today eventually, but hopefully this is helpful. Um, so we had Luca about a year and a half ago and then we thought, well, do we want to try and get pregnant again? Do we want to continue with adoption? And, um, decided that we wanted to try and get pregnant again. Yeah. And that was about nine months ago. And um, I felt, and I genuinely believe this is true, that my perception and my, um, or not perception, but just the state of my heart and my attitude towards God has been so different from what it was last time. Mm. And that is true. I see how before I was like, I just didn't even believe I would be able to get pregnant. It was easier than hoping 
and then being let down every month. And so I was like, well, it's never going to happen. And so this time around, I, I have hope and I believe that God can do what he wants to do. And I believe that he is powerful and I believe that his timing is good. And so I've seen ways that he has so radically changed me. And it feels like only a work of the Holy Spirit in me that has changed that. So that's about where I was um, at the end of last year. So the very last sermon in 2018. And we usually give that sermon to an intern or a younger staff person to Mm -hmm. preach. And Paxton, who was our pastoral intern, he preached that sermon. And he preached on expecting God to move in your life. And if you believe that God is an all-powerful God, that all things in heaven and on earth are his, that he is the only one who actually has the ability to change circumstances in your life, then you should pray to him expecting that he would move in your life. Yes. And so... um, A true point. Right. So he encouraged um, people to do something called an impossible list, making a list of things that things that you wanted to see God do in your life that were only going to be possible if God moved. So our small group decided to make impossible lists and to share them with each other and to pray for these lists. A crazy novel idea to apply what you hear in your sermon at your church. Yeah. So we made those lists and there are a handful of things on my list. And one of the things on that list was that um, I wanted, I was praying that God would give us another baby. And we had already been trying to get pregnant Um, for a few months at that point. And so I was praying that he would give us a baby. So I've been praying for that consistently. I also, um, before that felt, or around that same time, I suppose it was, felt like, uh, decided that I wanted to start fasting towards this end. And then even more specifically, fasting for God to give me wisdom and discernment about whether we should pursue trying to get pregnant or adoption because adoption was something even before we decided we wanted to grow our family when we first were married that we knew we both felt like this is something we wanted to do anyway. So I was praying every day for a baby and even more specifically in this part's a little embarrassing, but it was an impossible list. So I was praying for a baby in 2019 and then I was also praying for discernment about adoption or pregnancy yeah and you're abstaining with your husband so that it was truly impossible <laughs> right i'm just kidding no that, Don't do that's that. not true yeah yeah it says in nehemiah that when people were going to attack the city nehemiah prayed to the lord and posted the guard <laughs> or yeah. as they used to say in the south trust god and tie up your horse right so we were yeah. trying to trust god and also so you're praying to that and yeah mm-hmm. so that had been going on for some time and i've wrestled in and out of that but again every every month god has continued to bring me back to he is good there is hope even if it's not in a pregnancy that month but not to say that i haven't struggled through it it it, it's been a struggle Mm -hmm. um but i but i'm fighting last time i just gave up and this time i'm seeing my sin i'm seeing where i'm not believing the right thing and i'm trying to fight to believe that God really is who he says he is. Yeah. And there's a big difference between the disappointment of sadness, disappointment leading to sadness and even lament Mm -hmm. and disappointment leading to a sense of injustice, which leads to anger. And God never said you can't be disappointed with the bitter providences that happen in your life. Mm -hmm. In fact, all through the Bible, godly people engage in pious lament. Right. Um, But that's very different than 
feeling that an injustice Entitled. has been done to you right. because of your entitlement and then raging against God in anger. Yeah. Right. So that brings us to a couple of weeks ago. Um, the date on that sermon, I'm going to try and find it in case you want to listen to it. April 14th, 2019. I encourage you to listen to it. 414. Actually. Yeah, yep. 414. Um, this was a sermon <clears throat> that Nick preached and... Um, there were a couple of things that were going on in the sermon. It was about Jesus's trial leading up to his crucifixion. And a couple, uh, one of the points was, you know, there are apparent inconsistencies. So how does your heart respond to those inconsistencies? And then the other point was when you're reading a story like this, um, how are you identifying yourself in that story? Our hearts are revealed when we see the way that we relate to the content of these different accounts. And he used Herod. As an example, do you want to talk a little bit about that, Nick? Well, in one of the things I've I've noticed preaching through the passion narrative in Luke is I've been reading the other passion narratives, and actually I did not realize until recently just how different they all are. Mm-hmm. Um, even the resurrection narratives I was reading this last week, and th- like they talk about very different episodes. I thought they were all yeah. pretty much the same in a way. They're not. Uh, Luke, for example, has no major characters in his resurrection post resurrection narrative at all. Like Peter is mentioned one time, like it's mentioned that Peter had seen Jesus alive, but like the uh, the highest profile apostle in Luke's post-resurrection narratives is Cleopas, <laughs> who is never mentioned again or before, mm-hmm. right? And then there's like another disciple who isn't named, yeah. right? Who many assume is Cleopas's wife, and but nobody knows, right? And so uh, in Luke's uh, passion narrative, he's the only one who talks about Jesus going to Herod. Right. The other ones are just kind of leaner and meaner at that point. It's not, there's nothing inconsistent about it. It's just um, the way the narratives are put together by the different gospel writers. And so Luke chooses to include Herod because Herod teaches us things. Mm -hmm. And it may be that Luke's gospel is a little bit later. He knows that Matthew and Mark have not included it. He knows that it's reliable information. And maybe he thinks that Theophilus or the other people he intends to write to would benefit from this story, or he may know that if he doesn't include it, it won't be recorded for posterity. And so anyway, he includes it. And there's a number of things that I felt like we could learn from that narrative. And so the one of the reasons I picked it was because there is an inconsistency with the other gospels in that narrative. Right. And there's also a lot of human inconsistency mm-hmm. that we can discover about ourselves if we see ourselves inherit as we should. Right. And so every human being is left on the horns of the dilemma of do I judge the text or do I let the text judge me? Right. Is yeah. reading the Bible a process of judging the Bible or is it a process of letting the Bible judge me? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, you were, I think this was before you got started, but you were saying in the sermon, look, when you're reading the gospels, you are never Jesus in the story. Yeah. You're never him. You aren't Jesus. Yeah. And, um, and so you're saying, okay, we're all Herod. And I'm thinking, okay, I've got to identify myself with Herod. And it was really not that hard at all. Yeah. <laughs> So you I can, honestly, Nicole, I cannot think of any negative character in the Bible who I have any trouble identifying yeah, with. Right. Like but, none of them. But in our in our self righteousness, sometimes it we've blinded ourselves. Oh, and it's very common now. Yeah. With a lot of the, because a lot of virtues understood ideologically in the present America. So, like, if I believe in this political ideology or this kind of thing, or I say the right things, or if I signal the right things on social media or whatever, I'm a good person. And when you think that shallowly about right. virtue, then 
it's very easy to think that you're a good person. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if you sit down and think about your failures, even your unforgivable failures Mm. for 10 minutes, if you engage in actual human reflection, you'll just sit there like so embarrassed and ashamed Mm -hmm. of how you've behaved and how much you have not lived up to your potential, even by your own worldly, naturalistic, completely Mm self-centered standards of morality. Much less God's beautiful, righteous standards. Yeah. And so, yeah, like you sit down. I mean, you take the worst people in the Bible and you're like, are you like them? And and before you know it, you're like, there are some striking similarities. (laughs) Yes. So, so two of those in particular from Herod that you preached about. Yeah. Can I add one more? I want to say one more offensive thing. And I, I, I say this with love. So when you hear this, I want you to hear this with love because this, it will produce so much freedom and peace and joy in your life if you believe this, right? If you read the Bible and you do not connect with the failures and wickedness of its characters, you are still an exceedingly shallow person. You're a, at this point in your life, if that's how you feel when you interact with these characters, or I could even broaden that out to the characters of any literature mm-hmm. and people in the news. Mm-hmm. If you don't identify with their wickedness, you are a very shallow person right now. And there's so much more to human existence when you realize how much there is to see that's wicked in you. And only then will you be able to really see the image of God Mm -hmm. in yourself. Because in order to see how wicked you are, you have to realize how fall you fallen short of your real potential and the duties you really have to the good. And only then can you see the absolute divine potential that's inside of you and the real good that you can do. And so it is incredibly freeing and enormously maturing and it produces so much peace and joy when you realize that the reason you don't identify with the, with the wickedness of others is because of how shallow you are and therefore wicked you are. And that just becomes an open door. Mm-hmm. It's better to have the attitude, whenever I hear of anyone's wickedness, I will immediately see how I can identify in similarity with them. Yeah. And... Um, even like, so I, I've even told people that's why you never call another person, no matter what they do, a monster mm. or an animal. Mm. So no matter how bad, bad the worst thug is, I'll never call them any, I, it's like a personal ethic. I, I'll never call them an animal. And I don't even call people like Hitler monster because the minute I do that, I'm signifying that they're not human. And in signifying they're not human, I'm comforting myself with the idea that they're not like me yeah. and I'm not like them. Right. I am like Hitler. I am like a child molester. I am like a thug in my heart. And the difference is just a difference of degree mm-hmm. and only by the grace of God. Therefore, I don't go there right. yet. Right. And so I think that, and that is a fundamental concept of Christian humility and piety that we've just kind of lost. Mm-hmm. And because we're afraid of it, mm-hmm. but you shouldn't be afraid of it. Mm-hmm. it. It will produce so much good in you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And going through Luke has, provided opportunities for us to see those things and I think especially in the sermon that you preached on Easter and this sermon which was the week before yeah it was forcing us to see ourselves in the story yeah and I think one of the things one of the distinctions that makes in our modern culture of what I just said is if you listen to what I just said you're like oh my gosh if I believe that I would have no self-esteem and the answer is Mm -hmm. right right but that actually would open the garage door to your self-worth oh yeah and there's right. a huge difference between self-esteem and self-worth. Mm-hmm. Your self-worth is ascribed from the outside and it's objective reality about your being. 
your self-esteem is how you prop up your personality so that you're not destroyed by your inconsistencies and inferiorities and which is an exhausting way to live because you do mess up and you know that and And you don't believe in your Mm self-esteem that's what the biggest problems with self-esteem is everyone knows it's a lie including you right it's one of the reasons why you can't parent that way your kids know you're lying to them and they'll go ask other people what the truth is Mm -hmm. and you don't want that so many parents just stick with it. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you need to know only through the depth of your depravity can you ever really uncover your true worth. Yeah. And that is a terrible, terrible, terrifying thing. But it's the only way a human being can become truly mature, substantive, and to use a biblical language, godly or holy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead and do that. So the first point, you were talking about how when Herod brings Jesus in he wants Jesus to perform a miracle right and Jesus says no <laughs> well he doesn't, doesn't say, anything. say anything no he, he just by his actions says no right. yes and then um Herod questions him and he doesn't say anything to his questions so those were your first two points each of those led to a different point the first was right. that we really believe that God should do what we want and prove himself to us so yes. immediately my mind went to oh no <laughs> <laughs> I wrote down, I have my journal in front of me and I wrote down trying to get pregnant. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then you asked a question, how many Christians in their prayer life ask God to do things for them? I'm like, that's what I'm doing right now. All of them. The answer is all of them. Yeah, this is what I've been doing in this impossible list. I've been asking God to do things in my life. For you. For me. Yes. Um, And then the second one was, we really believe that God should answer our questions. And as it's not probably not difficult for you to imagine, for me, there have been questions in this season, like, what are you doing, God? Mm-hmm. Why aren't we pregnant right now? What is the holdup? <laughs> Do you want us to adopt? Do you want us to try and get pregnant? Like, just lots of questions. Yeah, and this is, part of this is infected by one of the silly parenting models that happen right now, because um, one of the things that happened is that in former generations, Parents didn't explain things to kids Mm. because they recognized, as John Roseman said, that explanations actually invite argument. They don't educate, right? Because a child's attitude isn't really, doesn't really want to know. They want a pretense or pretext to argue with you. And so in former generations, parents would say, do this. And if a kid was like, well, why? They'd say, because I said so. And I'm the parent. This is what my dad would say to me. Right. It's (laughs) what you should say to your children. Okay. He would, yeah, he would um, never answer my why question. Right. And so Andy, now Andy Stanley cr- created a split of the difference here where instead Would of explaining to your kids. you can do it and you can ask me why afterwards? You had, no, he oh, said okay. you had to say, yes, sir, daddy, why? And you could ask why one time. Okay. So you, could, you had to say, yes, you were going to do it as a kid. Yes, I'll do exactly what you say, daddy. Yes, sir, I approve your authority and I will do what I'm supposed to do. And I will ask why only one time, mm-hmm. meaning I wish to hear an explanation and I'm not going to argue with you, mm-hmm. right? And that's a fine practice if you can enforce it. Yeah. My dad would say, you you don't get to know why. You go do the thing afterwards. If you want to ask me why, you can ask me why afterwards. Yeah. I think that's another great practice, right? Mm-hmm. Because And I've seen this with my own kids. Like I am an analytical person. I want them to understand how the world works. Right. I want them to know why I'm doing it because I want them to grow and mature. And so I want right. to explain it to them. Especially when kids get to the unbearable age, the age of puberty, 12 and so and later, you know, uh, it's stupid. You're just dumb to do that. They'll just, they're just going to argue with you and it's well, never going to end until th- you say, because I said so. 
right? Mm-hmm. And so what happens then in relationship to God is mm-hmm. we think we should parent that way. We think, oh, we should parent that way. Our kids think we should parent that way. That is, if you tell me to do something, even if you have authority to tell me to do it, and therefore you're not going to do what I want you to do, it is only just right and polite for you to offer a reasonable explanation that I can accept. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to believe that God parents that way. Yeah. Every evidence in the Bible is that he does not. Right. And, well, and I think this gets it. This is something you started the sermon in was that how we handle these things that, and in this case it was inconsistencies in the, in the accounts of Jesus trial, but how we handle those tells us a lot about ourselves. So are we responding in curiosity or are we responding in fear or, or I guess you, you said, you said piety would lead to curiosity. And so yeah, it's cynicism, fear and piety. Right. Um, you know, cynicism is like, Oh, you kind of want an excuse not to believe Mm -hmm. you're in that you're in the, presumptive negative right right? fear is the presumptive positive like yeah i believe this stuff don't mess with don't rock my boat right right? which is the kind of so one is cynicism the other is gullibility right Mm -hmm. but then piety is i want to know the truth Mm -hmm. but i believe god is the truth Mm -hmm. and the truth is out there and that if i don't understand something and something seems off Mm -hmm. i don't run from it and i don't sneer at it Mm -hmm. The only pious thing to do, truthful thing to do, is to press into it. Yeah. And one of the things that I found is, is that in all the inconsistencies in the Bible, all the either philosophical inconsistencies or narrative inconsistencies or seeming contradictions, of all of them, I've probably investigated, I don't know, 150 of them in the Bible. Two of them are difficult. Mm-hmm. No, I would say three of them are difficult. Mm-hmm. There's some issues with numbers in the Old Testament that seem like they don't match mm-hmm. and it's hard to figure out how how numerical systems work then and how that all goes together and does it go together. That's a fairly difficult one. There's one place in the Gospels where Jesus sends out the, his disciples and says tells them to take a staff with them mm-hmm. and in Mark's Gospel he says don't take a staff. I mean it's literally take a staff, don't take a staff and everything else in the, in the description is exactly the same mm-hmm. so it's very difficult to say it's not the same event Yeah, and so that's that is the only like stark obvious apparent contradiction i know of in the whole bible um i will say this there is a there is an article from i think 1958 in catholic biblical quarterly that gives 12 possible options for the resolution of that contradiction and that's the worst one in the whole bible mm-hmm. and about three of those answers i buy mm-hmm. um a couple of them are pretty complicated with greek lexicography so lexography so it, it's not easy for people to just sort it out um, but the but Luke and Mark and those guys they use different word, Greek words for some of these things and it's a little odd. Okay, and then uh, there's another one I can't remember what it is right now. I mm-hmm. thought of it before I went to the other thing. Yeah. But there's three. Mm-hmm. So what that means is there's like more than a hundred mm-hmm. that if you just take a little time, you just relax, mm-hmm. and with some honesty you press in, mm-hmm. you can find the answer. Right. And usually the answer points to, in my experience, it points to either a deeper understanding of the whole of God's revelation in the whole Bible. Because mm-hmm. oftentimes the secret is in the Old Testament passage quoted. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times it points to some to self-revelation. Mm-hmm. You learn something about yourself mm-hmm. by looking at the contradiction. And you find that the Bible's not in contradiction. It seems like it's speaking out of both sides of its mouth because it's speaking to two sides of you. Right. So I wanted to talk. So I, I sat through this sermon and it, well, and then it, in some of the points, Nick went on to say what this will lead to or what it led to in Herod's life and what it often will lead to is anger. 
That's oh. and this is what. Well, first, a willingness to listen oh, to yes. Jesus detractors. Yes. Because mm-hmm. if he's not giving you an answer, you go, well, Fine, you know, I'll listen to someone who, else. I'll, I'll listen to somebody mm-hmm. else, somebody who attacks you. Mm-hmm. And so then you give your heart over to people. Who and I thought Jesus. this was really important. You were saying, too, that because if you really are curious and genuine in, in wanting to see God do something or wanting to ask him a question mm-hmm. and what you are met with is silence, that's a, that's a hard thing to walk through, right. even if you can ask the questions or want to see the thing in a good place. Yeah. That's why I always say the problem of the hiddenness and silence of God is the biggest problem any human ever deals with. Right. Because the problem of suffering is essentially a problem of silence. Mm -hmm. Right. And the pro the issue though is, is that in every time in the Bible where God is silent, that silence is pregnant with a demand that our pride be broken down. Yeah. And so every, every human then is in this place where either they harden their pride mm-hmm. and they rage against the silence of God mm-hmm. or right. they accept the silence of God as an answer itself. Mm-hmm. And in the mystic tradition, this is called the dark night of the soul. Right. And I, I immediately, re- I, I said this before, like I immediately wrote down trying to get pregnant. I, I identified myself with Herod in this. And I also saw, okay, three years ago or however long ago it was now, I did go into this point of complete anger. Uh-huh. Something is different now that I'm curious and I'm, but I'm not angry in this moment, but it did make me think, how do I handle these two sermons? And so how do I look at these inconsistencies and press into them? And right. I imagine I'm not the only person right. who so, sat through those, both of those sermons and was thinking, this seems like a theological inconsistency what do I do? or a philosophical yeah. inconsistency. Right. Cause in one you're saying like, Pray for the impossible mm-hmm. and believe that God wants to do the impossible mm-hmm. and that in praying he will respond and, and do it. Mm-hmm. And the other it's don't just ask and demand stuff from God. He's likely to just stand there silent until you realize <laughs> yeah. you're being an arrogant twerp. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a good, a good question. So um, one of the books I almost never preach out of because it kind of annoys me how infatuated Bibles, people who do Bible studies are with it is the book of James. <laughs> Because it seems like every time you turn around, there's somebody like, oh, I'm doing a Bible study in James. Yeah. Because James is so practical. (laughs) It's such a practical book. And I'm like. That's not why I loved James, but I did go through that obsession with James. But I just felt like James was the only person who was going to tell it to me straight and not beat around the bush. But just say, you are so proud. Knock it off. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because like people read James and they're like, you know what James is really about? It's about the poor and about James' love for the poor and how like we should be good to the poor. I'm like. That's funny. No, it isn't. (laughs) Yeah. Like, yes, that's really just an example <laughs> where he's basically saying you're wrong and arrogant. Yes. Right. Um, and one of the examples of this is that you favor the rich because they do nice things for you and they pay for your church building and all that. And you pay no attention to the poor. And it just shows that you aren't like God at all. Right. But anyway, there's a passage that um, I haven't preached yet at High Point, um, but I think really deals with this really well because one of the things that I've said is the reason why Jesus did not answer Herod is because of his pride. Herod was not interested in the truth. He was not interested in Jesus. He was not ready. So like what would Herod do if Jesus had done a miracle? Right? Well, he probably would like clapped or something (laughs) rather than say, Oh dear God, what does this mean? Right. Right. 
this man is the son of God. I must submit everything in my life to him. I belong to him. I must take up my cross daily and follow him. That's not what Herod was doing. Mm-hmm. It said that he was hoping, it literally says in the text, he had been hoping to see Jesus do a miracle. Yeah. He wanted, he was a gawker. He wanted to see the spectacle. He had no interest in the spectacle's meaning, right? He didn't want Jesus. He wanted to see a miracle, right? Mm-hmm. And then when he asked questions, it says in the, in the text, Luke says that Herod plied Jesus with many questions, which means he like shot at Jesus the first thing that popped into his head. Mm-hmm. And he was like prying at him. Mm-hmm. And he was like poking at him. Instead of saying, Rabbi, what question should I ask you? Right? Like somebody I respect whose name I, I can't remember right now said something like, you can't give a good answer to a bad question. Like in many cases, the best answer to a question is that's the wrong question. Mm-hmm. The older I get, the more I say that to people. It's mm-hmm. the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question, right? Mm-hmm. And so a lot the, a lot of what comes across in Herod, and one of the reasons why he's such a good example, is because he's a king, he doesn't hide his bad behavior as well. Mm-hmm. And so his stupidity and his arrogance and his um, impiety is so obvious, right? And that's why Luke likes him, I think. Right? I think the Spirit says to Luke, use this. Because what's subtle, more subtle in us, because we have to control our behavior because we want other people to like us because we're not kings and we can't make them like us. Right. Herod just displays freely. But if we look to him for what he's really like, then we would realize we're just like him. So in, um, in James 4, mm-hmm. verses 1 to 7, it says this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they come from your des- Don't they come from your desires, the battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot, I'm sorry, you kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight and you do not have because you do not ask God. So at first he starts out, you're fighting over stuff that you can't have because there's a scarcity of resources in your life and you can't get your hands on it. So really you see it in other people's lives and you want to fight them for it and take it from them. And then you fight with each other when really the source of what you want is God and you don't have certain things because you don't ask God for them. So what James says in that verse, he's basically saying, instead of coveting what other people have, just ask God for it. And there are things you don't have because you have not asked God. Mm-hmm. So that clearly states, right? There are things God would give you if you just ask him. Yeah. Pray for them. Pray for things, right? Okay. Then he says this, verse three, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Okay. Can I pause you here? Sure. So am I right? And this is the way that I'm hearing this. Is it sort of like he's saying, and when you do ask, because he's talking to the same group of people in this. Right. So, so it's kind of like he's saying some of the things you don't have them because you don't ask. And then some of the times you are asking, but in those instances. Right. Cause you can, one of the things, whenever you write a pastoral epistle to somebody, mm-hmm. you're not actually having a conversation with them. So you have to like, preempt their right. objections because they would say but i am but I do pray right yeah. but i do pray i pray all the time he's like okay yeah mm-hmm. that's true but when you pray you often pray with the wrong motives right and then he said and then he and then he explains further right. you adulterous people <laughs> don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward god anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of god or do you think that the scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, 
right? Now the word envy there is that's translated there is intentional because he's talking about the main point of this passage isn't about prayer. It's about them envying and coveting with each other, right? Covetousness is the expression of internal envy. And he's saying, you see, you think the most important thing is your envy. You want the other things. What's much more important than that is the envy of the spirit of God. Mm-hmm. He covets your loyalty and devotion. Yeah. He demands it mm-hmm. and he will not stand by and bless your envy of other things mm-hmm. and other people, mm-hmm. right? Because that makes you an enemy of God, he says, but he, but he gives us more grace, right? He envies, right? He demands, but then he gives us more grace to meet that which he demands of us. Right. And this is, this is why the scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Right. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will free from you. Come near to God and he will come near you. Right. And so on. Wash your hands and purify yourselves. That is, that is turn to godliness. So essentially the bottom line of James is he's like, listen, worldliness is bad. Anybody functioning spiritually out of the context of worldliness is functioning out of the context of acting in enmity or as an enemy of God. If you act out of enmity or as an enemy of God and then you pray to God for stuff, you shouldn't think you're going to get anything. Mm. Because why would God bless your enmity? Right. Not only are you his acting as his enemy and it doesn't make sense that he would give you anything, but in addition to that, why would he confirm that attitude in you? It'd be terrible parenting. Mm-hmm. Why would he be like, oh, you're acting like my enemy. Let me bless that. <laughs> right? Even if it's something as sacred and beautiful as like a child or something that you could ask for with the right motives, Mm -hmm. right? Now, on the other side of it, he says, right, that like if you ask with piety, like if you turn to him and you humble yourself before God and you purify your hands, that is you seek to live in godliness and to obey his truths, that doesn't mean he's going to give you everything you ask for, right? right? Um, But that's the, that is the, piety in which to ask for whatever you're going to ask for right and if you ask with that kind of piety a if he wants to give it to you you'll get it Mm -hmm. and b if you don't you will get pissy about it right well and i think too when you were what's also standing out to me is that if if what he's saying is that what matters is god's jealousy for you and this is also something that i've been learning this year as i've been doing some more fasting than I've ever done before. (laughs) Like the purpose of my fasting is my relationship with God. It's not, I should fast so I can get this thing. It's, I want to get God and more of him. And that if, if you're asking in that heart, you are, you are going to get more of God. If you are growing in godliness and you are humbling yourself, even if you're not getting the thing you're asking for, you will be growing in your, intimacy yes. and fasting and fasting must produce that right even if you don't pray which you should of course but uh, to put it in the words of c.s lewis fasting disconnects you from the immediacy of sense experience right you're hungry mm-hmm. feed me <laughs> right and you go nope yeah. um i think it's actually in the first letter of the screw tape letters where he says like whenever people who don't believe like start thinking about things deeply. He's like, you don't argue with them. Reason is not the answer. The only way to damn them is to reconnect them with the stream of immediate sense experience. Mm -hmm. That's what you do because it is worldliness, not argument. Right. It is sensuality, not reason that damns the human soul. And so 
and envy and covetousness and quarreling right. are all the product of sens- sensuality. Right. Not like when we say sensuality, we think, oh, you mean sex with the wrong person or something uh, in terms of sexuality. And it's not what it means. It means your senses. Mm-hmm. That is that in another place, Paul says people who are the slave of their stomach. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and another in first Corinthians six, he likens illicit sexual contact to us being hungry for food. He says food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. That's about sexual morality. It's not about food because in the biblical understanding, which is the correct one, being a slave to your senses, that is sensuality Mm -hmm. is the lowest form of human existence. You're indistinguishable from an animal, right? In fact, it's the only place the Bible talks about human beings and says they're animals, mm-hmm. right? Is that and that it leads us to worship things of creation, Romans one, so that we behave and think like animals, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, that's not good. What you want is to is to be connected to God, but God, of course, is an immaterial spirit, and so the extent to which you're dominated by your sensuality is the extent to which you cannot be of the mind of the spirit. The spirit is, by definition, not your sensuality, mm-hmm. and so fasting prayer, piety, mm-hmm. humility. Yeah. Humility is by definition the op- opposite of sensuality. Because yeah. sensuality always says me now. That's what sensuality is. It is your subconscious and bodily reactions to what you want now. Right, right. Humility is the subjugation of that. Mm-hmm. It's to say, no, actually other things are more important yeah. than me. And so all of the things of godliness, obeying the truth rather than doing the sensual thing, right. all of those things and all of the lies that we believe in the Bible purports as things we deceive ourselves into believing because of our sensuality. And so that's why Luther said reason was a whore. People used to attack Protestant Christianity for a long time because of that, because they said, well, you don't believe in rationality. And then the, the age of postmodernity came where they said, well, the way reason really works is we have a gut reaction and then we come up with reasons to justify it. That's true of human beings who live in sensuality, right? right? If you're the kind of human right. being that doesn't engage in contemplation and fasting and the subjugation of your sensuality, mm-hmm. you will be dominated by it. And all of your rational thinking will really just be reasons mm-hmm. to go along with your sensuality, right? Yeah. It's only by the subjugation and the death and destruction of your sensuality and the sublimation of it can you start to think thoughts that are free mm-hmm. of the motivations of your sensuality? Yeah. And that only happens when you stop saying, this is what I want. Right. And you start saying, God, what is good, true, mm-hmm. beautiful? What are higher things? What is part of your personality? What is mm-hmm. honorable and good? That's why it says in the epistles, Paul says, think about things like what is good right. and honorable and beautiful. Right. Don't think about sensuality right and so i mean that sounds so simplistic to people but we are we are creatures with nervous systems Mm -hmm. how could it be otherwise right right so um this is the last wrap-up question that i have for you that i think if someone is listening to this and can relate so imagine there's someone who's who has heard both of these sermons and they're feeling caught between the two where they're saying i i identify with herod and i'm starting to find myself listening to the other sources of right. answers out there and le- moving towards anger. And I don't want to do that. I want right. to believe that God can move, but also ask in humility. What would you say to that person? Right. If you were, exp- so this goes back to the whole doctrine analogy we've used in previous sermons in this year. Um, one of the best ways to figure out what's going on with you spiritually 
is to look at your symptoms. This is something I covered that book substance a good bit is one of the ways I know what's wrong with me is the symptoms I have. That's true physically. Like when my back, the small of my back hurts, I know that I need to stretch the front of my legs. I've just learned that. I didn't know that when I first started feeling that pain in my back. I just thought, oh, I have a bad back. I didn't realize that because of my posture, I tighten certain ligaments. And so now I can treat it fine. As minute I, I feel that pain, I know how to get rid of it and mm-hmm. it's gone. Mm-hmm. But I had it for years. Yeah. Years. And I didn't know what to do, right? And similarly, now spiritually, when I get angry, right, I used to think, man, I wish God would get his act together, you know, or, you know, some version of that, right. which I would never admit to myself. Right. Now I think, wait, I'm angry. Why? That means I think I'm right and I think God is wrong in some area. Mm. What is that area? Mm-hmm. And I know that I have, like, if you're angry at God, you're proud. Like, that, that's all there is to it. You're proud. Now, the question then is, where? Why? Over what thing? And then in what way do you then engage with the silence of God, which is meant to chasten you into humility Mm -hmm. in such a way as to trust God and to actually look for the truth? What you you need to press into out of curiosity rather than get angry about and dismiss in cynicism or get scared about because Mm -hmm. you've only ever believed in gullibility. Right. Right. And so... I, yeah, I would say like when so the let the symptoms guide you, mm-hmm. but you see you have to know enough about Christian spirituality yeah. to know what the symptoms are right. and what they should guide you to, mm-hmm. right? But anger, um, anger is always going to be anger towards God at least mm-hmm. is always going to be an indication that pride has crept in. Yeah, and you're at, you're you're asking with the wrong motives. And I can share too, for me, an example, like specifically related to trying to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. What I have noticed, and again, this comes from doing it horribly before, Mm -hmm. um, is that I do get a sense of coveting what other people have. Like I I start to sense that in myself, coveting that other people are having kids and that I'm not. And then understanding usually that also is lets me know that I think God isn't being good to me. even right now. And so a helpful thing for me is focusing on what are the things that God has given to me right now. So this is even just a couple days ago, I was on the phone with my sister and I was talking to her about this. And I realized that Scott and I have had almost a year and a half without a transition in our life. And that is the longest period of time we have gone without a transition. And it is the most stable that our lives have felt in a really long time. That wouldn't be the case if we'd had a kid by now or right, exactly, or sooner than this. Mm -hmm. And so I'm seeing that as a gift that we have a sense of stability, that that has has been a huge blessing in both of our relationships with God, in our relationship with each other, in relating to lots of people, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's, that's a gift that he has given to us. And so that's a way that I, when I look at the symptoms and I start to see you're feeling a little cranky. And it's centered around finding out that these other people are pregnant. There's greed that I'm dealing with. And then I keep going and going and going. And yeah. So. Yeah. And just there's all there's so many things just like mm-hmm. um, it feels embarrassing to not be successful at being fertile. Yeah. <laughs> Even though you have like no control over it. It's still kind of right. like. And then it feels unfair because there's other people who aren't married and aren't even trying to have kids that get pregnant. There's all these like illegitimate children mm-hmm. and. Um, you're like, um, we're married, we're stable, we're great. What's the problem here? Right. Uh, it's see, it's not how you would govern the universe. Right. right? Like (laughs) you'd be like, I would make all the little floozies infertile 
and I would make all the mo- like the married mommies maximally fertile. Like yeah. this is what I would do. You know, it, yeah. that's not how God governs the universe. Right. Like there's there's all these levels on which we're just kind of like, what's the deal? Right. right? Well, and, and I think too, it's just been so helpful for me to think that because I think we can also get into the trap if you're feeling like I'm feeling right now, I can think, well, you know what? God wants to teach them something through giving them that kid. I'm like, well, maybe not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I can't, that's just another form of comparison. Even if I'm trying to compare it in the other way, like it's, I don't know what he's doing. I don't have to know what he's doing. I don't get to know what he's doing. Right. And that, I mean, that is actually one of the biggest lessons. One of the biggest lessons is God has a revealed will. That is the things he's told us. And he has a secret will, the stuff he hasn't. And human beings, spend their energy trying to discover the hidden will of God and ignore the revealed will of God. Mm. That's how humans usually behave. Mm-hmm. Why is God doing this? He should be doing this. That's all the secret will of God. You don't know that. There's no way you could know that, right? The idea that like you can plumb the infinite complexity of what God is doing, knowing none of the data of what he's doing is insane. And yet, there's all of his revealed will in the Bible and in Jesus Christ and in creation and in the human heart that he reveals to us that we're commanded to respond to obediently and with faith and with piety. Right. And we just ignore it. That's what human beings just do in every generation. We just, mm-hmm. whatever, I'll do what I want. And God is always trying to say, no, this is what, this is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do my stuff. Mm-hmm. You're going to do the stuff I told you to do. And here's, here's how we close the gap of that. You're going to trust me that I'm good. Right. right. And that's why salvation is, comes down to that one dynamic faith you have to sit there know only what i've told you Mm -hmm. and believe i'm good Mm -hmm. and that is so difficult for rebellious creatures right (laughs) yeah and but it's the only way you can do your part in the will of god right and it's the only part way you can be happy and it is an incredibly important lesson and it's a lesson that like there's so many most of the lessons we learn in faith are lessons we have to learn a number of times Right. They're not like, it's not like, oh, look, two plus two is five. Now you are for it. Now you know that. <laughs> Sorry. I'm so used to saying people act like two plus two equals five. That I just now say that. <laughs> you know, like you learn two plus two equals four and like you've got it, yeah. you know, or you learn to ride a bike and like you've got it. Almost no lesson of morality and virtue and spirituality is like that. Right. You learn it and then you find your mind and your heart and your sin finds a way to forget it mm-hmm. and circumvent it. And you have to like relearn it. But every time you learn it, you learn more, you learn it deeper, you learn, like, and so it can be a really helpful process, but mm-hmm. it's not an easy process. Yeah. Yeah. So in relationship to that apparent contradiction, mm-hmm. the answer is yes, God wants to give you amazing things. Mm-hmm. And some of those things in his sovereignty has chosen to only give you if you pray. And so there is a list in the mind of God of impossible things that he will give you if you pray for them. Right. That's true. Mm-hmm. Well, what's also true is If you ask for things with the wrong motives, he will not give them to you. (laughs) And so if what's motivating you is worldliness, then you're asking for God to help you while positioning yourself as his enemy, and he will not give them to you. Mm -hmm. And there's no other way to see that than it's an act of love. Right. I was just going to say that. that For his own name mm -hmm. and for you and for everybody you'll ever touch in your life. Right. And for everything that could possibly be impacted by his answering of your prayer. The, the, the effects of love are actually not singular just to you. They are infinite. Because if he, like, th- just think about it for a second. So let's say you're asking with the wrong motives and God gives you a child, okay? You're a worse mom. Mm-hmm. The child comes into a worse home, right? You're a worse 
mentor of other moms, your child is raised to be a worse human being, right? Mm -hmm. This will confirm this kind of attitude for everything else you ever pray for. Right. It will (laughs) confirm that attitude in you mentoring other people for everything they ever pray for. Right. It will affect your level of gratitude and thankfulness. Like you could just go on and on and on. Yeah. And it would just affect you. It affects everybody in your life, everybody in your family, everybody. And then it's everybody your son ever affects, this child ever affects, the son you already have ever affects forever and ever and ever. Right. Mm -hmm. It's infinite. And right. so his refusal of your prayer request, if he sh- chooses to do so for good reasons, right. is not just loving to you. Mm-hmm. It's loving to the whole freaking universe yeah. every yeah. time he behaves that way. And so like piety is the only mechanism mm-hmm. by which we can understand who we are, understand who God is and function in our relationship right. with him. And, uh, and, and it, on first listen, you can hear what you just said that, yes, he wants to give you good things. And if you ask for it in a bad way, he has every right to say no. That can feel like, well, he's just tricking me. But it's no, it in itself is, I mean, it's everything you said about loving to you and to everybody. But it also is what it's doing to me is helping me see, well, then that must be what matters more to him is my godliness. And there must be a reason for that. And so if you are willing to hear that and then be obedient to that, that will be far better than any gift he could give you. Yeah. Everything can be a window to your disbelief or a window to increase your piety and godliness. Yeah. And so what faith is partly is, is a bias to grow, Mm -hmm. to see things so that you can grow rather than be angry so that you can fail. Right. You know? And so by God telling us we should have a certain kind of bias, we know how to begin to relate to every situation in a way that will reveal things that will help us, you know? Um, but just to clarify, lastly, those aren't the only two options. You can, um, you can ask with the wrong motives and, and not get something, or you can ask with the right motives and get something, or you can ask with the right motives and to not get something. Right. God is completely sovereign in his gifts. Mm-hmm. And so, um, he is very responsive and he's very generous and he gives us great, wonderful things. Mm-hmm. Um, but for those of us who have had prayer journals for years right. in which we've engaged in the discipline of writing God's answers, in many cases, the answers are later than we thought, different than we thought, um, completely outside of the box of what we anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, he just, the thing we were praying for, he just changed the situation entirely. Yeah. So that the prayer request didn't even make sense anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't realize that my prayer request was just completely ig- ignorant of what was coming down the sovereignty pipe, so to speak. Right. And so um, as you go through that over the course of 20 years or something of following the Lord, you you begin to realize that like you hold your prayer requests very lightly, even for things that you desire very profoundly. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, it it makes God your one and only. Right. Mm-hmm. Seeking him and his righteousness, his kingdom yes. and his righteousness. And mm-hmm. that's it. And there are a bazillion versions of you experiencing his righteousness and his kingdom. It could be for you with one child or 10 or like there's a, many versions mm-hmm. of your life seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. And if that's what you want, if that is literally all you want and everything else is a means of that or a version of it that you get to enjoy, mm-hmm. then you're cool. And if it's not, it's like, I should have this many children. They should be in this order. They should be this many months apart. Like Lexi and I, like we wanted all boys. We had two girls, right? We wanted uh, four children. Our third one was a significantly disabled boy. Okay. 
And then we're like, okay, we want to have our kids close together. And then we have an oopsie a child five years after the next kid. I mean, it just feels like a horrifically crippling thing. And like, it was very difficult. And we're like, this is literally in every way, not what we wanted. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like I would have loved to have four healthy boys who were relatively athletic. Right. And that's literally the opposite of what I got. Mm-hmm. All born like 21 months apart. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's what Lexi wanted too. Cause she's right? like a tough girl. Mm-hmm. She would love to have all boys, but I've got what I've got. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you like, you learn, then you have to accept what you've got and then you've got to learn to love what you've got and right. then you've got to love the, those kids. And then right. you've got to realize that like, I was so bound up in like my excessive consciousness that having to raise girls and reach their hearts mm-hmm. changed mm-hmm. me in ways I don't think I could have ever changed with if I had had four boys. Right. I, so I, I don't claim to know God's providence in what I got right. entirely. But I see but good in it. you at least it. see that, right? Yeah, I can see right. good in it. Is that God's whole... I mean, I think whenever you see something you think God is doing, you just you need to say, I think I might understand 1% of what God is doing. Yeah. Right? Never think those are, that's the only angle God is working on. Because mm-hmm. then you'll just... Your, your God is way too small, right? Your conceptualization God is way too small. But to just be like, I can see good in God giving me daughters, in right. God giving me a disabled son, in God giving me a... Um, like I have to inculcate masculinity in a boy who's never going to beat anybody up and who's never going to weight lift and is never going to win anything in sports, but who is a man, right? He's going to grow into a man and he can be the maximally honorable, the, he can be the quintessential divinely created man as a disabled person. And I have to teach him how to be that man. That has made me second guess and re-understand and reformulate masculinity, spiritually speaking and personally speaking, over and over and over again. Right. To create something that is fully transferable to him. And that is that is a that was a good to me. Right. I wouldn't have done it that way because of the cost to him. But I don't know anything about God's providence. Right. Or what would have happened in the alternate universes I could have imagined. They could have been terrible. Mm-hmm. And so all I could do is with piety, look at what's happening what God has given me, receive it with faith, seek for it to be a means of growth Mm -hmm. and then to embrace my real life with joy and thankfulness as best I know how. Right. And in doing so, I'm happier. Mm -hmm. I do pray for the right things better. He does answer some of those prayers. He does not answer some of them Mm -hmm. as far as I can tell. Um, But hopefully I'll behave less like Herod. Right. And more like Jesus in the garden. Right. And at the end of the day, my one goal is to pass my trials. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening. Hopefully you guys found this helpful. I personally found it very helpful. So um, we'll see you next time. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us online on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or otherwise share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways that we have to reach new listeners. So until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.